which is Hamish's brother. Uh, here's my awkward admission. I, um, I have never been a good student. I was never good in school. I know that's like Chinese heresy to say that on a Sunday morning, but um, I was raised before ADHD had an official title, before there was medication and coffee for it. In, in my day, it was just that child has ants in his pants, or it won't sit still, or they even uh, talked to my parents about autism because I was always, you know, banging my head. I just, I just could not sit still. And I remember having to bring home report cards to my parents, which always said the same thing. Ian is a sweet little boy, but he's too chatty. He talks too much. He daydreams. He never finishes his work. He distracts the class. In fact, by the time I reached high school, my desk was actually out in the hallway because the whole class couldn't study, apparently, if I was there. And it impacts your view on education. I pretty much, I have to be honest, believe that school was for girls. Because girls like to sit still and please their teacher, and boys, we just have these impulses. I feel like if you're not ADHD, you can't understand this. But if you are, you know that you can either not say something or your head will explode. You've just got to, you know, you've just got to move. You've just got to say stuff. And so you can imagine my terror when we moved as missionaries to a country that didn't allow missionary activity. So we didn't have a visa, which meant our kids couldn't go to school, which meant that we had to homeschool. Now, I know in Canada, some parents do that on purpose. But for us, it was no choice. Our kids couldn't go to local school. We had to homeschool. So I'm just being honest. Sherry was the teacher. And I was the principal because I did have a lot of experience in the principal's office. So I just basically sat in my office waiting for trouble. And by the way, I was the only man in my neighborhood who didn't go to work every day. So I was just trying to figure out how do I meet people in order to reach them for the gospel in order to start a church. So every afternoon we would homeschool in the morning. Every afternoon we would go out and play football in the, in the sorry, soccer in the field. And the kids would come out just because they'd never seen a man so hairy or in short pants. So they would all come out and kick the ball around. Then afterwards we would shower. And so I remember one evening I would always quiz our boys because I suspect that they don't learn anything in school, just like the father. And so I was always looking for reasons to justify my poor activity in school. And so I'd ask them, what did your mom teach you this day? And I remember that little Brennan, our youngest, who's now married, and has a child of his own. He, he came in as a six-year-old after the soccer game. And I said, so, Brennan, what did mommy teach you today? And he said, human genetics. <laughs> well, first of all, what does a six-year-old need to learn about human genetics? And secondly, I was convinced that he didn't really learn it. So I said, Brennan, let's process this that you learned. I will give you an example how people can look at you and know that you and your daddy share the same genes. There's things about us that are unique. We're different from other people. And people will look at you and be reminded of their father. So let's look in the mirror. I will give you an example. Then afterwards, you show how much you learn from your mummy by giving me an example. 
And so I said, look, you see this nose? It's not a proper white man's nose. You probably heard in uh, Malaysia, we have the orang-utan, right? In Canada, we call it orangutan. Orang-utan means jungle man. They also have another monkey, the proboscis monkey. Great big nose. Have you seen it? Great big belly, red hair. It's called the orang belanda, which means Dutchman. <laughs> right? The big nose. They say, look at this nose. We don't have a proper white man's nose. When they see your nose, they'll go, there's only one other man in the city that has a little nose like that. It's the other white man. They'll know you're related to me because we have the same nose. Now you go. And for some reason... He couldn't find the right information by looking in the mirror, so he began to look around the toilet and said, oh, we use the same shampoo? <laughs> I shouted, Sherry, they're not learning anything. I said, no, I'll give you an, another example. You know, our blood type is very rare in Asia. Remember when you had to go to the hospital to get your tonsils out? Daddy had to go give blood because A negative blood, very rare. They didn't have any in the country. I had to give blood so they can test your blood and see from your blood that you're related to your father. That's how they know we're related. That's called sharing the same DNA, sharing the same blood type. Now you go. He thought, pondered for a long time. He said, finally, ah, we both live with mummy. <laughs> so finally I gave up. I said to Sherry, walked in, she was reading on the bed. I said, you see, I told you I was no good in school. We're not teaching our boys anything. We're going to educate our children in nothing. We'll be in trouble when they go back to Canada. They won't be able to know anything. So I, I laid there in bed saying, oh, this is my cross to bear. I'm sacrificing for you, oh God. Have mercy on me. And night came, me feeling terrible. And suddenly I noticed this little silhouette in the door. And it was Brennan. And all that time, hour or two hours that had gone by, he was stewing around in his little mind how everyone would know that he and his daddy were just the same, shared the same genes. He stood in the door, triumphant hands raised, said, Daddy, I know. I suddenly felt good. And I said, you tell your mother how everybody knows that we are the same. And he said with great conviction, me and daddy we're both going to be men when we grow up. <laughs> Which is probably funnier to you now than it was to me at that moment. I'm just saying, here's what I'm thinking. Have you ever imagined that you have this concept of yourself that not everyone shares? Have you ever thought that as a church you view yourself a certain way? And your neighbors all around you may not have that same view of you. So here's our question today. What evidence is there in us? As a church, as God's people, me as an individual, what evidence is there that I share my Father's DNA? What evidence is there that Christ is in us and through us, and working in us. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd like to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 21. I'm going to read, uh, beginning in verse 12, we'll read through verse 17. Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17. And it reads like this. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. 
He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. The leading priests and the teachers of the religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, Hosanna, son of David. But these leaders were indignant. They asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied, haven't you ever read the scriptures? For they say, you have taught children and infants to give you praise. And then he left them and went out into the city. Let's pray together. Father God, we acknowledge that we are living in a world that is broken and fallen. And many weeks we are crushed by it. We acknowledge that we come into this place full of information that does not come from you. So God, sit our hearts down in your presence. Open our hearts, our ears to hear a word from you. For Father, we are desperate to hear something that comes from you. Rise up in us. Be mighty in this place in Jesus' name. Amen. If we had begun reading in the beginning of this chapter, we would have discovered a Jesus who was at the height of his popularity. If you recall, he had just to Jerusalem on the back of a donkey's colt. It's kind of a parallel image to a conquering king coming home victorious, riding a stallion. Jesus was not riding a stallion, nor was he riding a donkey. He was riding a donkey's colt, which meant likely his feet were dragging on the ground. And yet, so popular was he that the entire city was in an uproar. Verse 10 says this, The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And many missiologists would say that this statement is the beginning of a great movement of God. When all of your neighbors begin to ask this question, who is this that these people at Vancouver Chinese Baptist Church are worshiping? When all of Vancouver begins to ask, who is this Jesus? Then we're at the threshold of a great and mighty movement of God. And as Jesus came into Jerusalem, the streets, remember, were lined with people shouting, Blessed is He, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. They were lining the streets with their clothing so that His feet wouldn't touch the dirt. They were waving palm branches of victorious celebration. And now the one who comes in the name of the Lord stands at the very threshold of his temple. And this morning I'd like for us to observe some things that Jesus brings, the King brings, when he comes to his temple. You can only get this stuff from Jesus. You can't get it from your next great lead pastor. You can't get it from a, a program at the Christian bookstore. It's stuff that only the king brings when he comes to his temple. It's the stuff that binds his people to their spiritual father. Notice the first thing he brings in verse 12. 
the first thing Jesus brings is purity. Verse 12 says, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the temples, or sorry, the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. Now I know a lot of Christians love this passage of Scripture because for a lot of us we like to say, there you see, it justifies my righteous indignation. I get angry because Jesus got angry. We're not Jesus. This simply provides for us a snapshot of the wrath of God when we set up idols in His temple. If you want righteous indignation, go a few verses down for the Pharisees' response. That is righteous indignation. But Jesus gives us a snapshot of the wrath of God when His people set up idols in His temple. So the first thing Jesus comes is he does is He comes to bring purity. And what we need to understand about that temple is it was built for a very specific purpose. That temple was built to be the residential palace of the King of Creation. In fact, inside that temple, in what is called the Holy of Holies, was the holiest place on earth. And I think you understand that like Chinese, Hebrew is an original language. That means it has no forefather. It's an original created language. And as such, it's a bit more primitive than English. In other words, in English we can express the superlative by saying, Saying good, better, best. Best is the superlative of good. But in Hebrew, there's no way to express the superlative except through repetition. So holy, holy, holy means he's the holiest. And in actual fact, in Hebrew, that word holy means different. That means God is different, different, different. He is more different than anything else you would encounter on earth. That's going to matter in a moment. This place, the Holy of Holies, was a place of incredible purity. No one entered that place for fear of their sins causing them immediate death. In fact, sometimes when we read the story of Zechariah and the birth of John the Baptist, we think, oh, awesome, Zechariah got to go into the holiest place. But no, friends, he got the short straw. No high priest wanted that job. In fact, so terrifying was it that they tied a rope around his waist when he went into the holiest place. And when he went into different, 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 he prayed only one prayer, and that was, God, have mercy. Have mercy, have mercy, have mercy. And if he was struck dead, at least they could drag the corpse out. But not only did that temple have a specific purpose, the people who worshipped there had a specific purpose. As they entered in and encountered the glory of God, they were to take that glory and pour it all over the despair in the world. But notice what they were doing was taking the rubbish of the world and bringing it into the holy place. 
and VCBC, we need to understand this because unless we are constantly, specifically focused on taking the glory of God and pouring it out on the despair of Vancouver, we will naturally be taking the pollution of Vancouver and bringing it into this place. And because that has happened, the first thing Jesus does when he comes to his temple is he cleans up the mess that I have made of it. And friends, you know that when Jesus hung on that cross and declared, it is finished, that curtain that separated different, different, different from ordinary was torn in two and the holy presence of God prepared Himself to enter His new temples. And so the first thing Christ has to do when He comes to my place is clean up the mess that I have made of it. Years ago, when I was running from my call to ministry, I was working in a timber mill in Port Kells. I was the knife grinder who was in charge of the maintenance of a chipper. I don't know if you know what a chipper is. A great big wheel that's covered in sharp, razor-sharp knives. It spins rapidly and tears up all the logs that aren't good quality for wood. It makes it into wood chips. Every break, I would rush down to the chipper, take out the knives that weighed about 25 pounds. I don't know what that is in kilos. You can do math better than me. You know my story. I would take them to my grinding room. I would grind them razor sharp. And every time you grind it razor sharp, it increases the gap and it makes the chips too big. So every knife has an anchor. The knife is made of hard, polished steel. The anchor is made of soft, a combination of zinc and lead. I would take a hammer and I would knock that anchor out of the knife and I would break up the pieces and put it into a bowl. I would put a fire under it and then the most amazing thing is that fire heats up that crucible. Suddenly those broken pieces of metal explode into molten metal and a black polluted skag would come to the top. I would skim it off throw it on the floor, and after that I could look into that bowl of metal and see the perfect image of myself. Just like a mirror. This is why purity matters to the King of creation. When He looks at VCBC, He's not hoping to see a cooler church than the one down the block. He's not hoping to see new, improved people. He's hoping to look at us and see the perfect reflection of the image of Christ. And for that to happen, He must come to my temple and clean up this mess. The second thing Jesus brings when He comes to His temple is He brings prayer. In verse 13, He says, The Scriptures declare, My temple will be called the house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. You see, this speaks to the second purpose of the temple. First, to be the residential palace of the king of creation. Secondly, we are designed for an intimate love relationship with the king of creation. That's why we were designed. And because of that, communication matters to him. And we better understand this. He cares more about this intimate love relationship than He cares about your investment portfolio. 
He cares more about this relationship than He cares about our physical well-being, our health, our family. He cares about that. We were designed to relate to Him, not to stuff our investment portfolios. I hope that's not too harsh. Every one of the Gospels record Jesus as being a man passionate about prayer. Luke chapter 6, verse 12 says he even spent the whole night in prayer. Now, now let me just make a short comment. I've noticed that sometimes pastors use prayer meeting as a spiritual barometer for the health of their church. The more people that show up in prayer meeting, we think the better it is. And sometimes we think the more people who gather, the more powerful our prayers are. So we want to have a whole bunch of people. In fact, sometimes I've even heard of citywide concerts of prayer because we seem to believe that the more of us, the more powerful prayer is. But if you notice the pattern of Jesus' prayer, is He preferred to pray alone? I mean, I'm just saying. Because Jesus recognized that the power is not in the people, the power is in the power. One person praying with a purified heart, James called that, calls that a righteous man, is powerful because of the shadow of the Almighty. Jesus comes to make us passionate about prayer. And here's an interesting comment by the Apostle Paul, Colossians 4, verse 2. He says, devote yourself to prayer. Now, one of the challenges of translating is if we translate things literally into English, they don't always make sense in our culture because that Greek word devote actually is our English word leisure or leisure. So if we were to just directly translate leisure yourself to prayer, I mean, people are like, uh, what does that mean? But just think about this for a moment. What do you do in your leisure time? What do you do in your free time. I think if you think about it, you would acknowledge that's the stuff I do and I would do even if nobody ever paid me for it. Because that's the stuff I enjoy. In fact, most of us, especially in Vancouver, because we like to say you live in Toronto to work, you live in Vancouver to play. We only work, what, for the weekend? That's what we say in Western culture. I work for the weekend. Why? In other words, all of my work provides me the income to enjoy what I really want to do. Skiing, biking, I know this is Chinese congregation, sleeping. <laughs> the things we really love, that's what we do in our leisure time. But notice what we do with prayer. We make prayer the work. It's the week so that we can get something from God. I pray so that I can have better health. I pray so I can get a better job. I pray so my family can be enjoying itself. You see, Jesus flipped it on its head. For Jesus' prayer wasn't the work, it was the leisure. It's not the stuff God gives that is the goal for Christ. It is the time. God Himself is the prize. How many of us would say, I, I only sleep so I have energy for long moments in prayer with God. How, how many of us would say, I only eat so I have the stamina to pray? Relationship matters to your God. 
We are designed to be His residential palace. We are designed for communication with the Almighty. The third thing He brings in verse 14. The blind and the lame came to Him in the temple and He healed them. I know we're Baptists, but this is International Awkward Sunday. I want to share a story with you that I don't share very often because number one, it makes me look bad. And number two, in the West, we just have no way to process this. So we we were living in Taiwan about 20 years ago. And, and Taiwan 20 years ago was so, so different than it is now. I mean, Taiwan has advanced light years in just 20 years. But 20 years ago... Uh, we had to learn everything. Everything was so different. You know, even greetings were different. Obviously, you probably know their standard greeting was, have you eaten? A way of showing concern. And even their compliments are connected to food. At least 20 years ago, their compliment would be, you, you look fat today. They would come into our house. They'd ask me if I'm, I've eaten. They would say, oh, husband very fat, wife also fat. By the way, let me know if that works in Vancouver. I'm trying to make a good impression. <laughs> the other thing that was different is that unlike Vancouver, where you go to Safeway and you look at an object and, and you see the price, in Taiwan 20 years ago, apparently the price was somewhere here on my head. Because I couldn't find a price for anything and they would just look at me and then throw out a price. Apparently, how much they thought I could afford. And so, as we learned language in Taiwan... A part of survival language for white missionaries is learning how to bargain. Because if you don't learn how to bargain 20 years ago in Taiwan, you're not going to survive. And so I, I learned to, to say things like, Ooh, it's Or my favorite is, do I look Japanese to you? <laughs> you know, all these ways to, you know, just survive. And so I, I, I also was an art major in university. And so one day after language study, I was walking down underneath Roosevelt Road and there was a man selling carvings. And I, I just love Chinese art. And so I, I began to ask him, so how much do you want for, for those carvings? And he looked at me and it said 85 US dollars. And I said everything. Oh, you must be joking. Are you trying to slaughter me? Do I look Japanese? And we began to bargain. I squatted right down there on the street and a big crowd gathered around. Apparently, they'd never seen a white man doing an Indo squat. And, and it was just entertainment for the whole group there. And finally, after a long time, I'm not sure exactly how, how long, I, I bargained them down from $85 to $20. Thank you. You know I got some face. <laughs> and, and so I took those three carvings. And it was getting near Christmas time. We'd already had our tree up in the manger scene. And I, I took those three carvings and I put them right in the most conspicuous place in our living room, right on the dining room table, because people just walk into our house. They, they would say, oh, hi, uh, have you eaten yet? Looking fat. Uh, then they start asking me how much you pay for everything. In the house. <laughs> that, that was after, whoa, why is a tree in the house? You know, they asked me all these questions, showing they're concerning and and so finally, I knew they'd get to those, and I'd say $20, and say, oh, Petora, you know, not bad. And, and then that would demonstrate to them that I know how to live in this, this culture, and that was working really well for me uh, until 
One day, our Chinese pastor came in. He told me I was fat. Sherry was also fat. Fatter this week than last. <laughs> and then he looked around, and he saw those three carvings, and his face literally went white, and his jaw dropped open. And in that one horrible moment, I learned that I had purchased the God of longevity, the God of prosperity, <laughs> and the God of fertility. <laughs> And put him in a most conspicuous place, right in the dining room table. Now, now I happen to believe that God is so great, he can even do something to glorify himself in the middle of our mess, in the middle of our mistakes. And so I said to Sherry, I'm taking those three gods, and I lined them up right after the three wise men. Be- because I wanted everyone to know that one day every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And I left them there as a testimony to all of our friends and neighbors. Now, we had this old Buddhist lady, 65, Mrs. Chun, who came into our home every day. She saw everything that went on so that she and I could go off to language school. And she watched Brennan, who was just a baby, not yet walking at that time. She saw everything that went on in our home. So the first day, after I set up those three gods, after the three wise men, We were on our way out for language school. I looked over at the manger scene, and those three gods were lying face down in front of the baby Jesus. And I knew what happened because I have three boys. And so I went to them. um, Of course, not Brandon. He was a baby. And I, I said, two older ones, you come here, stand in front of your dad. And I gave him a lecture. We're all missionaries, you know, not just your mom and me. You boys are missionaries, too, and you are messing with our testimony. Don't touch the manger scene. We're here to communicate with everyone who calls your mother fat that there is a God who lives. (laughs) So they they said, you can probably, if you have have kids, you know what they said. They said, wasn't me. Well, you know, I was born at night, but not last night, so I just said, don't do it again. I set them back up. Off we went to language school. The next day, we were going out the very next morning, and sure enough, those three gods were lying face down in front of the baby Jesus again. This time, it was time for a real sermon. I called the two boys in. I laid Brendan down next to them. And I went after them. There was laughing, then there was crying. That's how you know a good sermon. (laughs) They were weeping. Even Brendan was squealing. I threatened them. I said, you will ruin the whole reason God called us here. You're working against the Lord. It's a horrible thing to say to your kids when you don't, don't do that. <laughs> of course, they swore they never did it. We don't swear in our house. It was him. It was her. It was nobody did it. They went off and we went to language school. The third day, the same thing. This time I just felt grief, you know, so I, I went to Mrs. Chun. I said, Chun Tai Tai, I need to ask your forgiveness because you know why we have come. We have, we've come to learn language and culture so we can share this good news with Chinese people. But you have seen three days in a row my boys just not being filial. They deliberately disobey me. I know what that means in Asian culture. I say, We will try harder, and I will never forget her response. She said, you don't know anything. (laughs) She said, the boys never go near the altar. I said, it's not an altar. It's just showing a picture of 
how God of glory pressed himself in the human flesh. I'm just showing a picture. And she said, the boys never go near the picture. I said, well, then what is your explanation? And here's what she said. My explanation is this. Your God is so great, our gods cannot bear his weight. Now, friends, I'm not telling you this story because you're missionary. I'm your missionary. Believe that the power of God knocked those gods down in the front of baby Jesus. I'm telling you this story because I didn't. You see, somehow, my faith has become so ordinary that even Buddhists believe more in God's power than we do. But I'm telling you, that when the king comes to his temple, he comes to bring purity. He comes to give you gifts that only come from the Father. And it's power. It is his power to do more than we can ask or think or even imagine. And now I have to move quickly. The last thing he brings to his temple. Another bit of an awkward one. The last thing he brings in verse 15 is praise. Because we see as the children in the temple saw the amazing things that Jesus did, they burst into praise. Hosanna, son of David. Hosanna, son of David. Now this makes us nervous because we're not charismatics. But let me feel, let me tell you how badly I feel for every praise team every single Sunday. Because their job is to get somehow this group of people who've been beaten up by the world, who wish they could sleep in on Sunday, excited about being in church. Sure or not. It's exhausting. They're barely staying awake for this message. No, I'm joking. But here's what happens. When the king comes to the temple, he does what only the king can do. And when we see the king doing what only the king can do, we suddenly see the water for our thirst, the food for our hunger. We see what our souls long for, and we can't help but burst into song. Hosanna. But notice this was not chaotic, neo-charismatic chaos. They all burst out with the same song. How is that? You see, we've made that word Hosanna a bit of a, a trite religious cliche. We name our churches after Hosanna, but we really don't know what it means. It's an ancient Hebrew phrase. Hosanna literally means, oh God, I beg you, save me. It's not, oh, the preacher's so good, I wish my uncle was here to hear it. It's Jesus is here, I need that. When the king comes to his temple, I'm not thinking about what other people need. I'm not thinking about how he can straighten others out. I'm just thinking, Jesus, while on others you are calling, do not pass me by. Hosanna. I beg you, save me. There's something else that happened in the temple. Because there was other people there other than children, other than the lame and the sick. The religious leaders were there. 
those who were trained in the Scripture, those who were mature in the faith, those who had been serving such a long time. This is our 30th year in full-time ministry. When they saw the amazing things that Jesus had done in the temple, Scripture says they were indignant. The Greek word literally is angrily grieving. Can you imagine the combination of grief and anger? Blended together in one toxic emotion? The response to Jesus bringing what only the King of creation can bring? There were some who just got indignant. Here you are, VCBC. I want you to know I love this church more than any other I've known. Right now, you're at a threshold. As the King comes to this temple, all of us today will choose. Either with the Pharisees or with the children. With the children, we will say, Oh, Shana, Lord, I beg you, come to this temple. Clean me up. Make me passionate about prayer. Produce in me power that comes from the Father. Put a new song in my mouth. Hosanna. The risk is this. God, by His character, is obligated to love us unconditionally. But He's not obligated to bless us. Because in verse 17, after the Pharisees' response, Scripture says, And then Jesus left them. Then he left. Took his purity, his prayer, his power, his praise, and left them to do everything humanly possible to be a good, righteous, Holy people. This is our king. I want to invite you to bow with me just for a moment. This is your time. This is not my time. This is not time for you to think of you know, who needs this, who you wish was here. I will tell you who is here. The king of creation. He's come here today victorious. The conqueror of sin. He's come here to declare this land is His land. And He comes here on purpose to bring to you His temple, His residential palace, what only He can bring. What would your response be to the King of creation today? Do you need time to think about it? Or would you say, yes, truly, God is in this place, and I want more. Not more of me, not more religion, but more of His purifying presence in my life. More of a passion to communicate with the lover of my soul. More power to produce the fruit that my Father brings. 
and more praise that results from seeing him do in my world what only he can do. If you would say that today, then your only prayer in your heart needs to be, God, Hoshana, I beg you, come save me. Father God, all throughout this room, you are responding to the heart cries of your people. You know our need even when we don't know how to say it, when we don't know how to communicate, when we don't even dare open our mouths, you hear our hearts cry. And all through this room, you hear the weeping of hearts crying out to you. God, you are faithful. Even in the middle of our mess, remember mercy. Come to your temples. Those Christ died for. Fill us with your powerful, purifying presence. Rise up. Make your name great. We pray it in Jesus' name.